0: So, uh, this is the last week of our series, AHA Moments, and when I was about to hit 40 years old, I had a friend come up to me, and the friend, (laughs) my friend said, uh, so, uh, have you had a midlife crisis yet? And I said, well, I don't know, what does it look like? That's kind of a direct question, by the way, that's real personal, real quick, but what do you mean? He's like, well, are you going to get hair plugs, or are you going to go buy a sports car, you know, or whatever, and I was like, I don't know, I don't think so, I'm not really feeling that yet, I mean, I get what you're saying, like, we're like... I'm closer to death or something. It's kind of morbid, you know? Like, I don't really work that way. I don't know. Like, I don't need all that stuff. But for me, like, I know I'm getting older when I get excited about buying appliances. Like, I just got super pumped. This is me with my new dishwasher this week. <laughs> all right, take that picture down real quick, please. Um, but, you know, sometimes in life, we get to places where we're like, okay, I need to find my edge, you know? I got to I got to get my edge back. I got to get my, my swagger back, right? I got I to get back to, you know, get back to where I used to be, you know? There's a story about John Wesley where he, uh, I don't know if it's true or not. It might be apocryphal, but it's a really good story, and it could fit with John Wesley's life because he was famously persecuted. He met resistance all the time, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, and he was worried that he was losing his edge and that he was— um, that he was just not being faithful enough. And, and one day he's, he'd gone three days without being persecuted and, and he was riding on his horse and he was praying about this and a farmer nearby saw that heinous Methodist John Wesley and picks up a brick, throws it at Wesley, misses his head and Wesley got off his horse and knelt on the ground and said, oh, thank you, God. I haven't lost my edge, you know. It's kind of a, it could be true. But if you listen to John Wesley back in the day, his preaching would un- unnerve people, uh, simply because of the messaging. It was thoroughly scriptural. It taught a lot about the new birth of the Holy Spirit, about, of course, the grace of God, about salvation through grace by faith. Um, and, but for whatever reason, as he continued to preach this message, pulpits and churches got closed to him, and he met this resistance from the established Church of England. So what did he do? He began to go out into the streets. He began to preach in city crossings, uh, fields, coal mines, wherever people would listen. He would start by singing hymns. And as he did that, he would draw a crowd. And then as the crowd would gather, he would begin to preach. And as he did this, uh, the established religious leaders in England at the time did not like that. So they began to pay basically activists to sow the crowd with moles, so to speak, to create riots and, and try and overthrow Wesley and silence him, okay? And this is what he dealt with for 19 years early on in his, in his ministry. He would be pelted with rotten tomatoes, stones, beaten uh, manure. Crowds would come and pull him out of his house, break the windows, sometimes set the house on fire that he was currently living in, um, wherever he went, he felt resistance and opposition. Every single place he went, there's 19 years. And yet, because he resisted this resistance, if you will, God blessed his faithfulness, his tenacity, if you will. And then over time, he would write about the work of the Holy Spirit in these mobs. And he would face them head on. He said, it was my practice to look them dead in the eye and not back down, but not resort to physical violence, but not resist the resistance. And many of these men typically would come in like lions. And he writes, they would leave as lambs when the Holy Spirit would heal them and they would hear the gospel for the first time. They'd be awakened. You know, I've, I've learned this, that just because people want to kill you, it doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. Just because you're experiencing resistance in your life it doesn't mean you're moving in the wrong direction. So this is the yaha moment for one is that resistance shouldn't be resisted. Sometimes it might mean that God is using you in a powerful way, but you can't give up. You have to keep moving forward. If you didn't know this, I worked at the Billy Graham Association in Charlotte for a few years, and I went to him in one of his books. I wrote a story in 1968. He was preaching a crusade in Chicago, and these crusades would last days, sometimes weeks, as they would rent out uh, arenas and, and fields. One night he's up preaching in Chicago and a group of Satanists, devil worshipers, enter the floor of the arena with the intention of taking the platform and, and, getting re- and silencing the meeting. This is a true story. And while they're coming up, creating all this noise and riotous you know, behavior, all black, Dr. Graham got on the mic and he said, I'm calling every Christian in the room to go up around these people and embrace them and lay hands on them and pray. And the, the riot stopped in their tracks. And the next day, the leader of this group would write a letter to him and say, I wanna thank you for, because you literally saved our lives last night. We were on a path, path, we were headed toward a cliff and God saved all of us by what he did in that place on that night. Sometimes resistance doesn't mean you're moving in the wrong direction. Wesley never failed in tact to encounter encounters like this of resistance, but he didn't resist it, but he looked forward in faith and didn't back down. C.S. Lewis said, when the whole world is running toward the edge of a cliff, he who runs in the opposite direction seems to have lost his mind. You don't have to run with a crowd. You might get left behind, but you might be in the right place. You know, as I did youth ministry for so long, I would tell the kids that I worked with, and maybe you're here today as a young person, you don't have to run with the pack to fit in. Sometimes social pressure makes you make really, really bad decisions. You can be your own person and make your own decisions for yourself and not listen to other people tell you, right? And just because they're all running toward a cliff, I mean, it's that old cliche, right? If everyone jumped off a cliff, would you do it too? You know? So the one who's going the opposite direction seems to have lost their mind. You don't have to resist the resistance. It's light, In contrast to the darkness, it's truth exposing falsehood. It's a voice in the wilderness calling sinners to leave the broad path, go to the narrow way, don't jump off the cliff, turn back. But the people that are calling for that message sometimes can be perceived as you have lost your mind. Even Paul said, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So if that makes me a fool, he would write, then call me a fool. In the eyes of the world, I don't really care. So the world has always been opposed to the message of the gospel, it's nothing new. Of course, it would eventually cost Jesus his life that he would give up willingly for all of us. The world does not need a church that tells the world what it needs to hear. The world needs a church that tells the, speaks to the world prophetically in love, but doesn't it resist the resistance that may come against that message, right? So in the story we're gonna look at today in Luke chapter four, people are literally trying to throw Jesus off a cliff. I mean, you've maybe, I, I spoke to, about this to a few guys the other night, and I was like, have you ever read that story before? And they had never heard it. And it's, it's not something you really read about a lot, but they literally tried to kill Jesus right at the beginning of his ministry, trying to throw him off a cliff. And it picks up where I left off last week in Luke chapter four, where Jesus is in the synagogue in his hometown of Galilee. He's teaching, he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah 58, Isaiah 61, and he's equating those words to himself, he's saying, I, you've, I have come to proclaim freedom to the captive, sight to the blind, this is the year of the Lord's favor, it is being fulfilled right now in your eyes, I am the word made fl- flesh, this is it happening right now, and so this is the context, and so he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, then he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You would think this would be the moment they'd try and kill him, but it's not. All spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this, is not this Joseph's son? See, Jesus has been gone for a while. He's come back to his hometown. They all know Jesus. They know Joseph. They know, Joseph's just a common laborer. He's a tecton, or a, not even a carpenter, not really, more of a stonemason, more of someone who worked with his hands. This is just a common laborer's son. Why is he saying these things? And Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. And then he goes on to teach on that. Then he's gonna back up what he's saying. He's gonna refer to Elijah. um, Elijah and Elisha. Two prophets who would raise the dead and, and cure the blind. Two prophets who would do miracles similar to Jesus. And he's, going to, he's teaching these religious leaders. He's saying to them, Elijah and Elisha, they went back to where they were from. And you know what God did there? God only healed the foreigners. God didn't heal the Jews in those, town, in those towns. And that's what's happening today in my hometown of Galilee. So this is the context of what he's saying. The truth is there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine all over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. So Elijah went to a non-Jew and healed her. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and yet none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian foreigner. And when they heard this, now they're mad. All in the synagogue were filled with rage. They get what he sang to them. God's not gonna work among your stubborn, hard hearts. He, he's gonna do some stuff among, a lot of stuff among the Gentiles, but not with y'all. So they're filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town. Here comes their resistance. Jesus doesn't fight back. He doesn't fight back against this resistance. They drive him out of the town. They take him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, so they might hurl him off the cliff. But I would love to have seen this. He passed through the midst of them and went on his way. So Jesus doesn't respond with physical violence. He doesn't start a riot. He doesn't hire instigators. He doesn't create a new activist movement. He doesn't get even, maybe even get emotionally angry. We don't know. But the person who they think is losing his mind is the most sane person of them all. And yet they're trying to throw this guy, Jesus, off a cliff. So he's saying to them, there were stiff-necked unbelievers in Elijah's day, in Elisha's day, who didn't get what God was doing, And when God did heal someone, it was a Gentile, not a Jew like you. It's the same here and now. He spoke directly to these men. And in the face of resistance, he didn't resist it. They tried to kill him. You know, for us today, we know that resistance can be a good thing, right? Resistance can uh, build muscle. I don't really lift weights anymore. But uh, in college, you know, I tried to do that a lot. We know that resistance can be helpful Um, we, if you didn't know this, my wife and I, we do homeschool our kids and, uh, you know, your public school, private school, homeschool, you really just have to choose your hard. There's, there's hard pros and cons to every single one, right? There's no perfect solution for everybody. This is what we felt called to do. And, and there's a lot of benefit to it and we love it. But when, um, you're teaching your kids sometimes they'll say like, "This, this is hard. I don't understand this. And I'll say to them, well, that's because you're learning. It's because a new memory is getting put in. You're breaking through a wall, right? You're breaking through that resistance of ignorance that you didn't know before and now you know something new. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's bad. Just because there's resistance doesn't mean it doesn't, doesn't mean what you need to be doing. The strain is the strength. It's through the strain that you gain the strength. But if you if you walk away from the resistance, say it's too hard, I don't want to do it, then you miss out on growing. Oswald Chambers would write about this in his famous devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. I'm not a huge fan of block quotes in a sermon on a screen, okay? <laughs> I don't typically do this. So if I do it, it means I really like it. And Oswald Chambers always brings it. He says, God does not give us overcoming life. He gives us life as we overcome. The strain is the strength. If there is no strain, there is no strength. Are you asking God to give you life and liberty Enjoy. he cannot unless you accept the strain immediately you face the strain you will get the strength overcome your own timidity and take the step and god will give you to eat of the tree of life and will give you nourishment in the straining he's saying if you spend yourself out physically yeah you become exhausted but if you spend yourself spiritually stepping out in faith letting god trust you even in the faith of resistance trusting god You get more strength. God never gives strength for tomorrow or for the next hour, but only for the strain of the minute. The temptation is to face difficulties from a common sense standpoint. The saint is hilarious. It's sort of of hilarious in the eyes of the world when he or she is crushed with difficulties because the thing is so ludicrously impossible to anyone but God. So like Jesus is addressing the religious hypocrisy in the synagogue moment, he's preaching the word in truth. He's essentially, you could say, stepping out in faith. He's being prophetic. He's not backing down. He's not resisting any sort of resistance. And God protects him and helps him escape and gives him strength in the moment to do what he was supposed to do. But you won't know what that's like until you step out in faith and let God use you in those moments of resistance. Now, a second po- point though is just because you're a martyr, it doesn't make it mean you're right, right? Plenty of people have died for things they thought were true, but it doesn't mean they were right. So the second aha moment I thought of is make sure you're standing alone for the right reasons. There's plenty of people stand on all sorts of uh, purposes and causes and all sorts of things, but it doesn't mean you're right. If you're standing alone on the wrong side of things, there's plenty of people throughout church history who have done that, who have stood on the, on the foundation of a heresy and wouldn't back down off of it, like Marcion or something like that, or Gnosticism, or even the founder of the Mormon church, Joseph Smith. He died in a shootout in a jail where he was literally died with a gun in his hand, killing uh, people, a mob that had come to kill him. So just because you say you're doing it for God, it doesn't mean you're necessarily moving in the right direction. So what's the difference? what Jesus would teach in Matthew that it's really for his sake if you do it if you do it in his way with his spirit leading you the word and the spirit leading you read these words in Matthew Jesus said don't think that i have come to bring peace to the earth i've not come to bring peace but a sword for i have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law For one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me. Okay, Jesus isn't saying you aren't supposed to love your family or love your your children, but he is saying the allegiance needs to be ultimately to me and me alone. And then from that ordering of loves will come a greater love for those in our lives. But he's saying, sometimes following me, you may lose some friends you may encounter some resistance. Following Jesus is not always easy. The church sometimes doesn't really give us that message, but we should. Sometimes it's not easy. There is a cost, Jesus said. He said, count the cost before you follow me, before you choose to put your hand on the plow. So whoever loves is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake We'll find it. So Jesus is really saying, if you do it for my sake, it will cost you something. It will not always be easy. But just because you're encountering resistance doesn't mean you're moving in the wrong direction. Even if everybody wants to kill you, it doesn't mean you're saying they're doing the wrong thing if you're doing it for his sake and his way, with his spirit leading you. But you know, a lot of us, some of you lead your own businesses, your husbands, your wives, your wives, of your families, we're all leading something. And here's the deal, is that sometimes when you're standing alone, it can feel just like that, right? Very much alone. You can feel very lonely if you're, if you're standing and moving and, and leading. And I know some people in the church are facing situations right now that are incredibly, places of incredible resistance where you feel that you can never overcome what's in front of you. It feels insurmountable. It feels impossible. But we have to remember Jesus' words. He's like saying, yeah, if you follow me, it'll cost you something. It will be hard, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. And I will give you strength in the straining. I will give you help when you feel like you have no help. I will fight for you. You need only to be still. Someone I thought about that was standing alone sometimes and for the right reasons for his sake was Martin Luther King Jr. In January of 1956, he was returning home um, about midnight after a long day of organization, organizational meetings and his wife and his then daughter were already in bed and he was eager to join them after a long day. But before he could get there, a threatening phone call came over when we used to have house phones, came over the, the line Sometimes calls he would get 40 to 50 times a day. People calling his house, threatening his life, interrupting his life. And when he would try to go back to bed after getting this phone call, he couldn't shake the menacing voice he heard in his head. Isn't that true? When someone speaks ill or or violence or accusation against us, it, it hurts. It resonates within us and it's difficult to shake it. And he, and he wrote, I, I laid in bed and I couldn't go to sleep. So he got up, made a pot of coffee and just sat at the kitchen table, put his head in his hands and cried out to God. And he would later write there in the middle of that night, he had an experience with Christ that he never forgot that he carried with him until the end of his life actually. He said, as I sat at that table with my head in my hands, feeling this resistance coming against me, it was insurmountable, it was too much. I couldn't overcome it. And it's true, under his own strength, he couldn't. He said, though, I heard the voice of Jesus telling me to still fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone, never, never to leave me alone. And like he said, sometimes God gives us a word before we go through a very difficult season that we can use as encouragement to cling to when the resistance is very difficult. And this is what Jesus is doing for him here. Because as he said, I'm not gonna make it with you to the promised land. I'll take you to the top of the mountain, and I'll, like Moses, and I'll show you what's on the other side, but I'm not gonna make it. But God gave him enough strength to carry the people with him to get that far. See, I think a lot of times when we encounter physical resistance to the gospel, or in Wesley's account, you get these stories of riots and opposition I think it's a, what you see physically is really a fruit of what's happening spiritually. There, as you're praying and you're fasting and you're moving forward in faith, there's a great battle. The Bible teaches us this. There's a great battle going on in the heavens all the time. And, that, and we can't give up. You have to press on and continue to move forward in faith and not resist that resistance and trust that God's eventually going to break through. And that's precisely what would happen with the Methodist movement. By 1757, after 20 years of dealing with what Wesley dealt with, he preached thousands of sermons, traveled hundreds of thousands of miles on his horse. At this point, though, in his ministry, the hecklers were gone. He was now regarded as a national hero. He was then invited to come and preach in people's pulpits. Literally millions of people had their lives changed because of his moving forward in faith and not backing down, not resisting the resistance. This great revival of the 18th century and onward that we are still recipients of today. Wesley remembered these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter five. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. God knows their lies. Rejoice and be glad. For in the same for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets, who were before you. So uh, it's great to look back in the past and look at past moves of God. I think it's fascinating. I love reading about revivals and the great awakenings throughout history, and they can inspire us to pray for here and now in the future, because we can't stay there, right? We have to be moving forward in faith, and so asking the question, how can God be using us? to pray and live our lives in fasting and moving forward in faith in such a way that there's a new awakening and revival today. Right? Does anyone have that hunger within you that we we need that everybody? We need to be hungering to see God move in this generation, more and more and more. Because without God, we have no hope. We have no future as a country. In our world, we have no we have no hope. Without more people turning to the gospel than ever before we need to be people that resist the resistance in front of us in love moving away from the cliff that everyone wants to jump off of and go in the other direction even though people may say you're crazy even though they may say you've lost your mind you know you haven't and you know you're doing it for the one who gave it all for you to show a new and better way i'm going to pray for y'all now that we would Develop a continued sense of that hunger for a new awakening and that we would grow into that place of following Jesus in a way that may cost us something. But to know that when that happens, it doesn't mean it's wrong, but it actually means that you're being led. So let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this word that you've given us that of the cost of discipleship and that you will always watch over your people, but you, you desire a church that has you as her first love and that is willing to do anything at any time to resist the resistance of the forces of evil in our world. So God, I pray that you give us a continued hunger for your presence, a continued hunger for prayer, a continued desire, God, to see your holiness and renown spread across this country yet again. God, we cry out to you. We intercede over this nation before you. We are a people, Lord, that without you, we're lost in our sins. And there are millions and millions of people right now that have no idea the purpose of their life, why they're here. They're running with a crowd, they're headed toward a cliff. And God, you don't want that. You You want all people to turn back and be spared. You, don't want, you desire for no one to perish, but to all to have everlasting life. So God, we give you our hearts back again and pray, God, you make us new. Take away the old things in our lives. Tear off the scales of our eyes. Take off the weights off our shoulders. Renew within us a, a right heart, a new heart, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And use us, God, God, use wesley memorial in a way that changes high point that changes the triad not for our glory but by your work in our midst you leading you plowing ahead for us and as you lead god i pray that we follow in faith in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit